Welcome to episode number 42 of the Fiduciary You podcast. Like last episode, I broke this one into two parts and I'm releasing both at the same time. So make sure to check out each one. You won't want to miss either part one or part two. My guest on this episode is Michael Dozier, who's a senior defined contribution advisor strategist for T. Rowe Price, where he's primarily responsible for driving the increased visibility of T. Rowe Price's investment brand, furthering the firm's position as a thought leader in the retirement arena. And he's been in the retirement industry for 30 years uh, and previously held executive positions at Fidelity and Mass Mutual and Franklin Templeton. This is Michael's second time on the podcast. During his first appearance, almost two years ago, he shared his insights from T. Rowe Price's inaugural 2020 Defined Contribution Consultant Study. On today's episode, he'll be sharing his thoughts about T. Rowe Price's 2021 version of that study that included survey responses from 32 consulting firms that work with over 33,000 plan sponsor clients and more than $7 trillion in assets under advisement. And it also incorporated over 450 plan sponsors surveyed directly by T. Rowe Price and nearly 6,500 plan participants from T. Rowe Price record-keeping clients. On this episode, we discuss topics like price competition and margin, uh, margin compression faced by consultants and advisors, how the competitive lines are blurring between the two, how to improve firm profitability and which services and capabilities provide differentiation opportunities, as well as plan sponsor and participant attitudes towards things like retirement accumulation, financial wellness, student debt, and HSAs, among other things. And make sure to listen to the end of part two, where Michael shares his best piece of practice management advice for consultants and advisors. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy part one of this episode with Michael Dozier from T. Rowe Price. Michael, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to have you back on the show. Morning, Josh. Glad to be here. You're actually my second repeat guest. So we originally, uh, I think in late 2020, um, uh, I had you on the show. Uh, you and Fred Reich are the two, uh, the two repeat guests so far. So I'm glad to have you back. Really excited to dig into the, um, uh, the information that we're going to cover today, your 2021 Defined Contribution Consultant Survey. And we pulled out um, you know, a number of, uh, I think, key slides and, and data points from that presentation. Uh, and I can't wait to get kind of your insights on the landscape of the consultant advisor um, uh, world, if you will. So let me see if I can go through these slides real quick. Um, maybe talk a little bit about um, this is a really big study that that you guys um, that you guys do over thirty consulting firms, um, more than thirty thousand plan sponsors, uh, over seven trillion dollars in assets under advisement, and um, also pulling in uh, uh, plan sponsor data from T. Rowe Price clients, where you guys are are doing the record keeping, and also participant data as well. So maybe kind of tee up, and could you just kind of talk about um, overall? What's the process um, that you guys that you guys went through as you kind of developed this? Yeah, happy to, Josh. You know, th this page represents to me one of the main reasons why I work for T. Rowe Price. I've been with T. Rowe about three years, but as you know, and many of your um, audience know, I've been in this business for 30 plus years. Um, but one of the things that attracted me to T. Rowe Price is its ongoing commitment to primary research, whether it's in the 
investment analyst side of the business or it's on the behavioral strategic influences side of the business. Um, and this is one of our big ones, right? One of our uh, marquee bodies of work that we do throughout the year in the retirement space. You already mentioned the number of firms and you can see the 38 firms here on this slide that that are represented in the study. It is you know, a big chunk of the industry. It's more than a enough to call it a representative sample of where I think the mid to larger end of the market is going. Uh, it is not about small plans. It is not about regurgitating just data points of existing uh, health of the 401k or retirement business. It's more about the strategic direction from those firms that are known to be influencers and innovators in the industry, right? Whether those are be more traditionally consulting firms, you'll see some of those, or more traditionally advisory firms, you'll see some of those. Purposefully, we went across that spectrum. We wound up with, you know, firms that tend to lean towards the mid to larger side of the business. You can find a couple of isolated examples where the plan sizes is probably smaller, but those firms are innovating in different ways. We were more focused on innovators than we were, um, you know, it, just the existing kind of rank and file, whether that's consultants or advisors. The other thing you, you touched on is this study, this body of work in and of itself was only one component that fits in these findings. When you see that dark blue there on the left-hand side above those 38 firms as you share these slides, Josh, that's coming right from these consultants and advisors. But when you see that greenish color or that gold color, that's actually plan sponsors speaking directly to us because we do primary research with them as well. Most of the content that we're going to talk about in this body of work came through a partnership we did with PNI, and we asked 500 plan sponsors a whole bunch of questions in a very similar fashion. And also the gold you see there, we, we, dropped, we talked to 2,000 participants slash retail investors every summer in our retirement savings and spending work. And we tried to, you know, uh, bring those multiple perspectives together to show maybe some places where things are misaligned or some places where things are aligned between those different audiences. And the first time I came and talked to you a year plus ago was the actual launch of this study. We did it for the first time in 2019 slash 2020. This is our second annual and we are committed to filling this space on an annual basis. So you will see this coming from us with some really cool longitudinal work over time to continue to track kind of, the, I'd call it the tip of the spear where some of these advisory and consulting firms are kind of taking products, services, business strategy. Right. And that's how we're going to actually, I think uh, today, we're going to cover what I would call maybe strategy practice management from these firms. And then we're going to touch on some more products and services as well. You know, how those are being kind of deployed currently within the marketplace. I thought one of the interesting things is, um, even between the time that you did this research and now, if you look at some of these names, um, M&A is real within the industry. So a number of uh, the firms that you guys um, uh, that participated in the study now have joined other firms that also participated in the study. So, yeah, um, I mean, in a in a less than six month window from winter 2021, when we started opening up the survey to the spring of this year 2022 and we finalized it and started reporting it out you're right three of the firms on here are no longer independent they've been acquired by other firms on this list so yes they had good timing right, before, right before the market dropped they had really good timing to uh you know to to, to sell high yeah yeah 
Yeah, some really good stuff. And you'll see all throughout our conversation today, Josh, I think the manifestation of the reason, you know, we always talk convergence at these kind of big esoteric kind of levels in the industry, but I think you'll see loud and clear where those firms that are on that path tracked by just pure M&A activity versus those firms that maybe aren't on that path and how their business models and their priorities might be different. Right, right. So why don't we get into the data a little bit? Um, I think there's some fascinating insights. Um, uh, you know, you hear about trends in the industry and things that are happening, but but I think you guys really dive into the data, some really interesting points. And, and you know, one of those is around price competition um, uh, and just overall competition, uh, how it's getting harder and harder, especially at the top end of the market, um, in my opinion. Um, and then that impact on, you know, on margins. And, and when I looked at the data, I think there's probably two drivers. There's obviously inflation and, you know, retaining talent um, and the cost of doing that, you know, wage inflation. Um, I've been hearing from advisors left and right how hard it is to find people, but how hard it is to keep their, their people, that people are getting recruited away um, because it's, it's kind of a, if you're a, um, you know, if you're an employee, it's a seller's market. I think the flip side of that, though, with margin compression is, and I think you see this in the data, is that advisory firms and consulting firms are having to do more for their existing clients. They're being asked to do more. And while they may not be getting fee compression directly, like you have to lower your fees, though I actually see that that happening at the top end of the market. I think the other thing is if you're anchored around your fees and you're being asked to do more, um, you know, that that has kind of like indirect fee compression. But talk a little bit about, um, you know, we see kind of the, the top four, um, you know, our price competition, margin compression. We see re uh, retaining and hiring talent, um, you know, increased litigation or regulatory scrutiny, um, which I think because you're playing probably a lot of these firms are in the upper end of the market. That's a reality, you know, down market, you know, fiduciary liability and litigation, all that stuff, I think is probably oversold because, you know, the smaller in the market just aren't really candidates for that. And then the, the last one is just how to kind of transition clients to uh, from senior teams. And I think I'd be interested in your insights there or senior team members to junior team members. So when you look at this, What's comes out and is really top of mind as you dig into, let's say, those top four things? Um, what are firms concerned about? Yeah, Josh, I think you, the, the, there's a reason why we box those four. I think they are major influencers and drivers on the industry. I think we would all say, you know, nothing new in the price competition and the price compression front. That's probably been top of mind for most of these firms for a, a decade or more. The headline on that one is it's not abating. I think it's actually accelerating. I think uh, because many of these firms that we actually interviewed are innovating in how they bring themselves to the market, scaling up and bringing some large market services down to the middle part of the market. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with you. Some of these issues don't resonate as much in the small end of the market, but I would say that they either will or they need to be aware of what's happening just above them from a market size standpoint because it's changing the landscape. So 
I think the the line being drawn at the bottom end of you know mega market down to large market, maybe even into the upper end of the mid, is continuing to slide. And I think the price compression is going with it because of the scaling factor that some of these firms are bringing to the table. So and, it's and do you do, do you find these less consulting firms but more advisory firms? Um, yeah, it's so funny. I think we we as an industry have always said that the vast majority of the innovation that happens in the DC space happens in the mega market, and then over time it kind of right. works its way down. I think that's still happening, but I think there is a big, I'll call it a bulge, happening in the upper end of the mid market because of some of these firms that have figured out if they can bring the scale that mega market brings plan by plan, but they can do it by clustering together lots of medium size or smaller, not small, but smaller plans, then I think a lot of that innovation is actually coming from there. And that is vastly historically advisory oriented firms more than traditional consulting oriented firms. Um, and, and it is, I think, innovating in the marketplace as much so as some of those mega market offerings have historically done, right? And, and we'll get into some of this in a moment, Josh, but we'll yeah. talk about things like financial wellness and some of the managed right. account offerings. I think those are two very specific examples where that has happened. Do you um, think these advisory firms that, um, you know, if I would just paint a broad brush, consulting firms, I would say, don't do very little to, if any, um, work kind of directly with participants but now you're seeing these advisory firms, and we'll talk about that, like you said, with the data, that are really trying to kind of uh, own and target the, you know, the participants, whether that be through like a managed accounts or whether that be through, um, uh, you know, cross-selling private wealth services, that they're willing to actually uh, drop their fees, if you will, as like a loss leader, because their strategy is, hey, we think we can make this up on the back end through, you know, let's say cross-selling private client services. Yeah, I would I would agree with that with one slight tweak. I think some of the uh, historically consulting-oriented firms don't reach out to the participant level in the same way. I think some of them have gotten quite good from an education perspective, but when it comes to actually trying to engage with a suite of products and services, I think that's where the difference is. And I think managed accounts, and I would just synonymously equate financial wellness in a new definition with those broader kind of wealth offerings that some of these firms that are more focused on convergence are bringing to the table. I would think of those as almost a synonym now. Okay. Um, and I do believe that is very different depending on the heritage or the tradition where these firms are coming from. Um, I think the on these four items that we're still focusing on on this page, two and four are related. So to, to move from the price compression into this war for talent, which I think is all the rage in the, the media right now, the way they're talking about it, it is real, right? Of these 38 firms, as we talked to them after the fact and begun these report outs on this study, I don't think a, a strategic conversation finished without someone saying, hey, I'm looking for somebody that looks like this, can you help me find them, right? right. Um, and you take that and you couple that just need for talent with the additional complexity of how do I manage my existing talent, which was made even more complicated by the pandemic and the virtual nature, and am I gonna let people work 
full-time remotely? Am I going to have people come into the office at some point in time? Is there some kind of hybrid model? I think the, the competitive landscape for hiring and retaining that talent went up exponentially because of some of those more softer factors about how I manage my staff. Right. And that fourth one about, you know, kind of the senior to junior handoff and how do I make that not a real or perceived takeaway from a client uh, satisfaction and engagement standpoint, I think is an outcome of some of the incredible growth we've seen from some of these firms that have been pursuing kind of this scaled offering over the last 10 years. I, I got a sense from a lot of those firms that they almost had this very barbelled workforce, right? They had the people that they built the business with 10 or 15 years ago that have been running long and hard and fast for years, but they haven't really thought about scaling up from an employment standpoint until they raised their head up one day and went, all right, I need more people. And if I'm going to need more people, maybe I need to organize myself differently. And maybe it's not just pure, you know, uh, growth-oriented advisors in the field, but maybe I need some more service-oriented people and I need people that are, you know, have different goals and have different job descriptions. And they start thinking about it, maybe a larger scale organizational strategy of how they, you know, manage their workforce. So I think all of that's kind of, you know, bundled up in those two items. And I would go back, as you mentioned, to just the fiduciary litigation issue. I think you're right. You said it's not a small market issue. I don't think it's a, a main driver with small plans, but I do believe the floor on that, you know, the bottom of where lawsuits are starting to, you know, show up and be a driver for people is changing, right? I mean, it's coming down to DC plans in general are getting larger, right? I mean, it's been, you know, a good 30 years now where some of these, you know, plans have, have grown in and of themselves, or some of these providers are again bundling that last flurry of lawsuits we saw the last, you know, eight weeks or so where uh, all of a sudden they're, they're, they're questioning is the low cost solution always going to be the ticket to security. And if some of those lawsuits play out as they are intending by their wording of it, I think that changes the game again. And it's not so much about the plan, but it could become about the platform and the service providers as much as it is about the plan. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, pretty much it, 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 I, I kind of laugh when I think about the, these plaintiffs firms, cause now you're getting more kind of copycat firms that are in there that, that are seeing this as potentially a market opportunity. They're taking Jerry Schlichter's kind of playbook and trying to deploy that sometimes word for word. And I had Jerry on the show in 2021 and he, he said he thought the floor's coming down, but he thought two hundred million dollars in plan assets was kind of the was kind of the bottom of the rung just because of the economics for a plaintiff's firm working on contingency. But it's so I just think it's funny with these plaintiffs firms now. They've literally made the case that pretty much every investment, um, you know. Uh, the, 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 the prudence arguments around every investment. So, you know, first it was active and then it, then it was passive and then it was target date. Now it's managed account. They're just throwing everything at the wall and trying to hope they can, uh, they can get something to stick, uh, at least enough to shake, uh, shake some of these plan sponsors down. So, yep. um, and, and again, I think the makeup of this study, again, I'm not surprised that that, that concern around increased litigation and regulatory scrutiny is higher uh just because this you know that's where a lot of these firms who i think responded they play in that they play in that market yep. um let me see 
let's go to the 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 next. So uh, this was an interesting data point around uh, where consultant and advisory firms their perspectives on uh, how they're seeing one another out in the marketplace in competitive scenarios. And so maybe explain a little bit about what's happening out there between consulting firms and advisory firms and how the, the lines are kind of blurring in terms of where hand-to-hand -hand combat actually takes place. Um, yeah, so Josh, this, this you know, uh, convergence of the competitive landscape, I think is a huge um, issue. Right. I mean, I, I think we've all been talking about some firms going up market, some firms going down market for several years now. And we have data that proves that many of these 38 firms are, in fact, doing that. Uh, I was shocked at how much the convergence of the competitive landscape has actually already happened. So if you look at the data we've got here and you ask advisory firms how often they're seeing large global consulting firms on the competitive landscape, it's the vast majority of the time. They're seeing more traditional consulting, whether they're boutique or large global consulting, they, those tend to blend together, but it's you know eight out of 10 times, nine out of 10 times. You even flip around and ask the large global consulting firms with this relatively new aggregator industry subset that we've got, how often they're seeing them, it's still one out of four, one out of five deals. So the overlap in the competitive landscape, I think is, uh, to say the the line is blurred, I think, is an understatement now. I think there's been almost a total mix of the kind of upper end of the mid-market right through the mega market. Yeah, I think probably the large consulting firms are like, who, who's who's the new kid on the block, if you will? I, I just think strategically, though, you know, for firms that want to go up market, in my opinion, uh, I think advisory firms like the ego stroke of working up market, um, but there are some downsides to that. And I, I, I would just name a few. Um, number one is the competition just gets more fierce. Uh, and everybody is in, in that case is, you're not competing against the two plan Tony anymore. You're competing against very legit firms. Um, clients are more demanding um, as well. And, not to say you shouldn't go up market. I think the real opportunity for advisory firms that play in that, that, that upper end of the market is actually down market. There's so many more plans. There's so many ways to probably differentiate coming down market, especially if you can create and deliver a scalable, efficient service model. Um, those clients tend to be more loyal. They have less turnover on committees. So you're not feeling like you're constantly, you know, um, you know, on your, on your heels, uh, and having to go back and resell your services. Um, have you seen that at all? Like, um, as opposed to going up market and it sounds like maybe a little bit, but, but firms that are saying, Hey, we can take this larger market and we can start to drive it. You know, we can start to drive it down into smaller plans and bring that large market consulting approach and that differentiation? Yes, uh, to answer the question very clearly, Josh, saw it. I've seen a couple of different flavors as we dug into this data. I think some of the firms, the more traditionally advisory firms that were building scale, I think always had their sights on 
starting to grow up market and being more sophisticated with their offer and being able to compete in that uh, much more price sensitive and much more uh, product competitive space. But I think some of them never had that intention and just were scaling with a new business model, right? This kind of aggregated business model. And, and as they scale, I've actually seen some of those firms, their average plan size doesn't look like it's moving up at all. As a matter of fact, as they get the scale, it might even improve their ability to kind of drop the bottom on where they can afford to do this. I do think the real issue here becomes not just talking about scale, but executing on scale from a tech standpoint. It's not always the sexy front end, you know, kind of a robo advisory kind of um, reach to into the participant base, but it's also the back end operations straight yeah. through processing and getting, you know, humans out of that that mix. I see a lot of data in here and qualitatively talking with these firms over the last six months. They are focused on both of that. And I, I do think that's where the tech investment is heading now is making sure that if you are going to use a 401k plan as a low cost way of looking for your new customers, especially if you're in a model where you're converging wealth and retirement, you've got to make sure that the the where the rubber hits the road, you truly can do that in a cost-effective way. Right. Yeah, firms still struggle so much, and, and there's a few reasons why, but struggle with a lot of manual manipulation of data and information, which, again, just takes time, and time impacts profitability and and uh, and margins. So um, so we, we're seeing from this, we're seeing just this, this um, you know the competition is 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 getting more uh, is getting more fierce. What about? Yeah. Well, Josh, sorry to interrupt, but I say yeah, jump to that slide right there because I think yeah. it just this is a little bit of the proof point of what we just right. talked about, right? I mean, you will see that there are the shifting down market and the shifting up market are on this chart. They're you know outside of the big box that we're really focused on, but you'll see those moves strategically laid out here. I think the in order to maintain a profitable, growing, thriving enterprise, advisory or consultant-centric um, or otherwise, there's things you gotta do, right? And that technology investment from an operational standpoint shows up here as number two, right? What also shows up as number one is just the top end, what am I selling into the marketplace and how do I continue to make sure that I'm with the competitive landscape or leading the competitive landscape and this general broadening service offerings, there's a lot going on in there, right? Yeah. And you'll see in some of the further data we discussed that um, those, the broadening of service offerings can can cover a, a wide gamut. It could be things like managed accounts, which we've already talked about. It could be things like retirement income, which is taking a lot of the oxygen out of the room in many conversations, but it does look like there's a commitment to developing products and services there. Um, back to that scale, you see people looking to try to standardize the process so it's not custom, you know, from scratch every time they get a new plan opportunity. It's more of a standardized approach. Not to say it's a standardized offer, but a standardized approach. And then the big one, I think, that is really uh, begging a question in my mind for a lot of these firms is delegated. Right. So whether you use the term OCIO or you use the term 338, let's blend them together and talk about how you're managing 
the fiduciary responsibility for your client from an asset selection, asset monitoring, and asset management perspective, there is a huge shift there. And I think historically speaking, a lot of people were asking that question as a fee-for-service revenue enhancement perspective. And I think that's still a fair question for some. But that's also another scale question that people are asking. And is there a way you can do more with less because you control more of the end-to-end process right. because you're a full, you know, a fully delegated fiduciary from an asset management perspective? Yeah, I definitely, there, there were some things that jumped out here that that just maybe to add a little bit of, you know, from the kind of former advisor and, and running an advisory firm perspective. Um, the first one about broadening broadening service offerings, you know, it's interesting, um, Michael Kitsis, who's obviously, you know, kind of the the practice management guru on the in, in the private wealth world um, uh, and has been a good friend for a long time. You know, it, it's interesting when he talks, he said that what advisors, you know, when you look at like what a lot of the robos have done, whether it's, a, you know, a betterment or, you know, um, uh, you know, Vanguard or Schwab, everybody trying to kind of like roll out these these robo platforms. What they've done is they've kind of dropped the, the 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 pure kind of portfolio management cost to call it, I don't know, 25, 30 basis points, something like that. Um, and what he says is that actual advisory firms, they, you know, they will maintain and really focus on trying to maintain that 100 basis points, you know, on average that, you know, private wealth firms charge. But the way they have to do it is value add up their services. Um, which can impact profitability. It's like you you broaden, you do more, um, but you're really trying to, you know, maintain kind of your revenue base. You know, you're trying to kind of protect your flank, not necessarily increase revenue, but protect the revenue that you're getting. But the way that you deliver that profitably is you have to get more standardized. You have to get more efficient. You have to leverage technology. I've said this numerous times on this podcast is, Private wealth advisors view technology as an investment. A lot of retirement advisors view technology as an expense. And, and you know, obviously I'm in the business now of, you know, selling tech to retirement plan advisors, but I think they really need to start to think about technological um, uh, adoption as, as, as an investment. And if you can standardize and make things efficient, one of my philosophies is always that you standardize the process, you customize the relationship. Um, but under the hood, how do we make things look as similar as possible? It's going to take stress off your staff. You're going to be able to deliver a more consistent uh, client experience. And again, I, like you said, I think that delegation, it may less be about, hey, we, we, um, we may not be increasing revenue per se, but we can improve profitability if you know, we're not having to get permission every time we want to make fund changes from a plan sponsor and we kind of control that, uh, we get some lift on our business. So I think, you know, my experience and in dealing with a lot of advisors now, I think these top four absolutely um, is what I'm seeing out there as well. Yeah, Josh, I think if you uh, move to the next slide, I think you'll see some manifestation of that in the, one of the questions you posed in there was, the definition of broadening the service offering is it is it just products is it also services is it is it core to the investment lineup is it broader than that and i think the answer on both of those questions is yes 
And what we uh, then followed up and asked a detailed question was, all right, from a products and services investment related, where is it you're focusing the kind of front end of the ship? And what, where are you making those big bets, both from a growth, but also from a profitability standpoint? And then we also asked it from a services standpoint. Hmm. And the headline I would tell you really is two from the top of this chart, one from the bottom. It's retirement income, it's managed accounts, and it's financial wellness, right? So, and, and interesting, if you really dig into this data, what you will see is the vast majority of these firms are making an investment in managed accounts, right? And there is a higher correlation with the more advisory-oriented firms, historically speaking, than the consulting firms. It's, it's higher in that sub-segment, but it's high enough where you know it's in both, right? It's 67% of these firms are expecting growth in the managed account space, and half of them are expecting to do that with it also being an enhancement to their profitability, right? So a new offer that they think they've got a bead on, how they're gonna sell it and do it profitable. Even more of these firms are trying to figure out how to productize retirement income. You'll see that's almost three-fourths of these firms are making a big investment. That's why I think it's a little bit different now on the retirement income front. We've been talking about retirement income for years, but if three quarters of these 38 firms are saying it's one of my big investments and I'm gonna make a product or service offering happen in this space, okay, there's a lot of force at play in the market right there. Three quarters of them are making that commitment, but look at how much the profitability expectations drop off, right? I don't think it's as clear to them on the path of how I make this be a contribution to profitability, but I'm just going to have to get in the game and make sure I've got a, a product or a service in this space. And, and do you think part of that is, you know, what was interesting to me was the traditional consulting services. So like investment menu design, manager selection, still by far 83% of firms said that was the most profitable thing you do. And I, I would say that that's probably the most commoditized thing and probably where advisors have been able to achieve the most scale um, from that, um, managed accounts, advisors can kind of own, they can own that, right? Whereas with retirement income, like they're not owning that product. It's probably more of consulting on, well, which, you know, guaranteed income product, you know, it's really around, you know, evaluation and selection and monitoring, but they're not kind of owning that. And that might be more of like a one-time or, you know, every few years where, I mean, it's, it, that's part of the challenge with the product mix right now. Do you think that's partly what's playing out is because I'm not really aware of advisors owning the retirement income, kind of guaranteed income in product solution, whereas with managed accounts, they can own that, which might be where they're thinking that's more profitable because they own it and that's an ongoing revenue stream as opposed to maybe a consulting project around a guaranteed income solution. Yeah, I think historically speaking, Josh, you're spot on. I do see two things that are changing that I think that will become less relevant over time. One is the definition of what a retirement income product is. I think as recently as a couple of years ago, most people had a synonym between retirement income and a guaranteed income product. I think that's beginning to fade. I think, it, and, and we've got data in here, we can come back and visit at a later time, but the, the data to me says that this notion of thinking about the silver bullet single retirement income product being one and done versus maybe a whole series or suite of products, 
I think that shift is is taken hold. And I think most of these mm -hmm. firms are thinking about retirement income much more broadly than just guaranteed income products. And if I actually, look, I, I think when I saw that, especially plan sponsors, when they're thinking about retirement income, I think the top thing that they highlighted was, you know, flexibility around distribution options, if memory yes. serves me correct. You nailed it. So again, I think we, we, we get enamored in general. It's a human nature trait. I think we get enamored with the cool new toy, the shiny new toy. I think with plan sponsors and advisors, both advisors and consultants, the, the first place that people are starting to turn their head now from a retirement income standpoint is just plan documentation that allows for ad hoc loans or regular distributions without forcing a full distribution. Um, making sure that the plumbing and the nuisance fees that might come from a DC plan, historically speaking, if you wanted to turn that spigot on without putting any new products and services in the lineup, that's job one, right? So, like, so like I don't have to pay a $50 distribution fee every month when I want to take a distribution to generate some monthly income for myself. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So that's job one. And then you look at eight or nine different other product types that we put out there most people, plan sponsors especially, said, well, I've got this, you know, QDIA, whether that be a target date fund, which is the vast majority of them, or a balanced fund, or in some rare examples now, managed accounts are starting to show up as the QDIA. Why can't I just, you know, let that ride, let the asset allocation ride? And the answer is, for a big chunk of these firms, that's probably a good answer. Right. For a big chunk of these participants, that's probably a good answer. But to get to the second change that I'm seeing happen, Josh, that I think uh, might challenge the historical definition of retirement income. I do believe some of these firms are getting into the retirement income space. And guess what? It's the same answer that we just talked about a few minutes ago. It's a managed account that they've moved participants to later in their working years, right? So there's this notion out there of a dynamic or dual QDIA where you've got target dates for the younger population and you've got managed accounts for the older population because their needs have become more sophisticated or diverse or rich. Well, if you've got somebody in a managed account when they're 55 to 60, and all of a sudden they're thinking about, you know, when's the time to pull the ripcord and go into the distribution mode, are you going to pull them out of a managed account? And I think a lot of these firms now are thinking, well, I'm just going to take my managed account and create a income extension on that. Yeah. And maybe it's a change in asset allocation. Maybe it's truly a change in product. Some of them are playing around with guarantees. Some are not. We've seen managed payouts that have guarantees that don't. We've seen target date funds that are now building guarantees into that extended kind of, you know, um, the old through versus two language seems almost antiquated now. It's more of just a slope of a glide path. But, you know, if you've got one that was intended to carry people through retirement, maybe I just need to throw some kind of security into that. And some firms are going uh, full force at saying the guarantees are still the complexity I can't figure out from a portability standpoint or from a fee transparency standpoint. So I'm going to go first to products and services that don't have the guarantee. Not that they're saying guarantees don't have a place, but maybe they're second or third in the queue. Yeah. And yeah, and just implementation product. I think you, I saw that in the data when I looked this, you know, guaranteed income, I think is growing in interest, but you know, I, I would still say it's, I'm not even sure we're in the first or second inning product wise. We might still be in spring training. The season hasn't really even started yet. And I think, I think from advisors I've talked to and consultants and also, you know, I think what I'm hearing them say feedback from plan sponsors is 
guarantee is interesting. It's on the radar, but it just seems like it's, it's, it's pretty early um, to kind of jump into the deep end of the pool in terms of, you know, innovation and product and implementation. And, you know, it's interesting around the, 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 the managed account. I mean, I, I think back years ago, maybe financial engines, obviously they were at the one kind of the, the, the early um, innovators in managed accounts, but I think they had like an income plus product or something where years ago they were talking about how do you, how do you transition that into, you know, the retirement income distribution component. So definitely interesting uh, in terms of, of um, as advisors are thinking about, you know, where are they getting the most bang for their buck in terms of services they offer and, you know, how to deliver those, you know, deliver those profitably. Thanks for listening to part one of today's episode with Michael Dozier from T. Rowe Price. Make sure to listen to part two, where we continue our discussion on large market consulting and product trends.